Welcome to the China Smart State podcast produced by the Leiden Asia Center in association with the DigiChina project at Stanford University. This podcast is about the digital transformation of China in all its complexity and how it affects the politics, economy and society of this rapidly emerging cyber power. I'm Roger Kramers, your host, and it's an absolute pleasure to introduce my co-host today, Linda van der Horst. Good morning, Roger. Linda wears many hats. By day, she works for the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but she's also writing a PhD on China's role in the region where it comes to digital technology. Obviously, anything Linda says is her personal opinion and does not represent the Dutch government. We are very lucky indeed to be talking today to Dr. Taiwei Lim. Taiwei is an associate professor at Sokka University in Japan, as well as an adjunct researcher at the National University of Singapore. He is a historian by training and an area of study specialist focusing on contemporary China and Japan. His most recent subject of inquiry has been China's relations with the region through the lens of the Belt and Road Initiative, and in particular, the fourth wave of industrialization and BRI regionalism in East Asia. Uh, some of his recent works on this topic includes uh, The Industrial Revolution 4.0, Tech Giants and Digitized Societies, uh, published by Palgrave, and China's One Belt, One Road, uh, published by Imperial College Press in London. And so today we're going to talk to Dr. Lim about how China actually moves in its region, where it comes to digital issues. But before we really, really go there, Obviously, there's a lot of buzzwords in there, and it's maybe useful to get into them a little bit first. So when we talk about the fourth wave of industrialization or Industry 4.0, Taiwei, what do we mean by that? Well, uh, actually, there is no uh, fixed definition of uh, Industrial Revolution 4.0, but uh, it does involve uh, some kinds of uh, technology uh, that's associated with Industry 4.0. For example, Internet of Things, Artificial Intelligence, uh, algorithms uh, and uh, also many other uh, uh, machines like uh, robotics. So all these uh, technologies, when they are implemented uh, in a certain uh, workspace or in a certain living space, uh, that uh, area will be implementing uh, Industrial Revolution 4.0. On a city scale, uh, when uh, these technologies are implemented, that city will become a smart city. And this is something that many uh, first-tier East Asian cities are aspiring uh, to reach uh, in the future. And uh, some are even networking uh, their machines so that uh, it becomes a network of smart cities. And And why is it it a revolution? It's a revolution because it follows uh, the uh, historical definition of industrial revolution. So there's Industrial Revolution 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, and 4.0. And the 1.0 is uh, sort of characterized uh, by the onset of the steam engine uh, that gives rise to the uh, contraptions and equipments uh, made possible uh, by steam engine relieving uh, humans uh, of uh, brute strength uh, to operate those machines. And Industrial Revolution 2.0 uh, is kind of uh, characterized uh, by mass uh, production uh, and assembly lines, uh, Taylorism and Fordism. Uh, Industrial Revolution 3.0 is when uh, you uh, get the uh, computers, internet, uh, and many other uh, sort of machines that we're familiar with, like industrial robots, but they were not uh, connected with each other. Whereas uh, Industrial Revolution 4.0, they start speaking to each other. Uh, Of course, uh, technologists uh, fear 
that there's there is another angle to it, which is actually the removal uh, of humans uh, from uh, much of the uh, production work, uh, uh, allowing uh, machines to be autonomous and operate uh, by themselves using algorithms, machine learning, uh, and uh, also uh, other kinds of uh, technologies that can uh, allow them to operate uh, by themselves. And so the removal of the human element is probably something that was not uh, sort of uh, expected or predicted by uh, by Marx himself. Yeah, so going going to the China-ASEAN relations, I mean, of course, this is already has a tremendous impact, but it is even more relevant in the context of uh, China and in, in the context of ASEAN. I mean... China is making, the Chinese government is making strides in terms of technology, technological in, innovation, uh, but also in terms of large-scale application and commercialization of these technologies. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how China is seeing this Industrial Revolution 4.0 and what they are doing to, uh, to promote it? There are three aspects of uh, what uh, China see as the future of uh, Industrial Revolution 4.0. Uh, perhaps the most important one is the economic uh, angle. Uh, China sees uh, the Industrial Revolution 4.0 as something that can afford them to be even more competitive uh, and uh, also allow them to reach uh, their goal of becoming an advanced uh, economy much earlier. Uh, what was unexpected by China perhaps uh, was the uh, pandemic. Uh, but because of the pandemic, uh, you know, uh, it seems like uh, China's economy has uh, surged uh, even further and probably accelerated the use of uh, more digital technologies. Therefore, according to uh, uh, European and American data, uh, the uh, by 2028, uh, they are uh, on track. Uh, if, uh, if there are no black swans uh, on track to become the world's largest economy by nominal parity, uh, they are already the world's largest economy by purchasing power parity. And so they see that the technologies afforded by Industrial Revolution 4.0 will make them become even more efficient, productive, and more advanced. Scientific progress uh, is something that uh, they uh, see as the future uh, of uh, China. Uh, and uh, some historians actually argue that uh, progress is something very new uh, to uh, Chinese uh, traditions and culture uh, because uh, Chinese traditions and culture often look at traditions, looking back into the past uh, as a mirror to look into the future and incorporate uh, elements of traditionalism and, uh, you know, uh, strong uh, cultural roots. But in this sense, it appears that uh, the current uh, China at least uh, looks at pro progress, especially scientific progress as something very important that can propel uh, the country, civilization and culture forward, uh, but also bring uh, the economy to the forefront. Uh, the uh, uh, Industrial Revolution 4.0 will also be very important to their dual uh, circulation uh, uh, policy. Uh, dual circulation, one would be the internal circulation, uh, where they are able to uh, implement uh, technologies uh, basically for internal development, uh, development of local economies, regional economies, and also perhaps the most important uh, sort of objective, of uh, equalizing uh, economic opportunities for most of its citizens and to close the income uh, gap. Uh, for the uh, dual uh, circulation uh, economy, there will also be an external circulation where China will continue uh, to interact uh, with uh, external uh, countries, external parties, particularly with other advanced tech nations, uh, especially uh, the United States of America, 
someone has uh, mentioned uh, recently, uh, a Chinese official has managed to, uh, uh, has mentioned recently that uh, China may be able to uh, develop uh, technologies on its own, but incorporating and also importing uh, advanced technologies from the US would be kind of like a flavoring on the rise uh, for them. So it's a kind of a value add for them. Now, and obviously that relationship with the United States, that's going to remain important for the years to come. Um, you know, China is still a major producer of, of electronic hardware. Um, and China needs access to particular American technologies. But at the same time, it seems to me that uh, large Western markets are not going to be a big driver for growth. So China needs to move into new markets. And this is where the region comes in. This is where Southeast Asia comes in. So when Beijing, from a political perspective, or when Chinese technology companies from a corporate perspective, look at Southeast Asia, what do they want to achieve? Well, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, or ASEAN uh, to be precise, uh, in uh, December 2015, has quietly formed the ASEAN Economic Community, uh, or AEC. And uh, since 2015, uh, ASEAN has actually uh, risen uh, to become uh, China's uh, largest trading partner. And so, uh, you know, China sees ASEAN as its own plus one strategy. Uh, what does this mean? Uh, well, uh, other countries uh, look at the, you know, uh, uh, the uh, over-dependence on the Chinese supply chain as a weakness or vulnerability. And so they're actually shifting out the uh, supply chains uh, from uh, China, at least during the Trump uh, years, to places like Vietnam or India, which is uh, the Western version of plus one strategy to avoid over-dependence uh, on China. Now, China is coming up with its own plus one strategy, which is uh, they expect uh, volatile relationships uh, with the West uh, to, uh, to remain. And therefore, uh, they want to uh, have something to hedge against the over-dependence on Western markets. And they certainly see ASEAN uh, as a possible uh, plus one strategy for them. And so they're trying to shift uh, a lot of uh, their industrial uh, activities uh, particularly uh, those uh, that are lower value added and also uh, the infrastructure capabilities to target them at uh, Southeast Asia to build up uh, the infrastructure over there uh, to form production networking. But uh, most importantly, uh, to actually export uh, more of their goods and services to ASEAN. Uh, and ASEAN certainly uh, has the capabilities uh, to be a large market uh, for China. Uh, especially uh, the uh, expectations that Chinese economy, uh, economic growth will continue to slow down as it becomes a mature uh, economy uh, and uh, at the same time to, uh, to uh, avoid over-dependence uh, on, on the West, uh, particularly in the face of hostile uh, relationship. So ASEAN in that sense plays a very important role. And indeed, within ASEAN, there are, there are already countries that are semi-allies of uh, China, just to summarize what you said, I mean, it's a, it's a fast-growing economy. Uh, it's a large population size, so it, it both makes for a great industry potential as well as a large consumer market. Uh, but also it's rapidly urbanizing, right? So uh, yes. that also makes it for a very uh, interesting uh, ground for digital transformation and, and the exports yes. of, uh, of uh, services, especially in the digital realm, such as yes. smart cities, industrial internet of things, etc. 
Yes, indeed, uh, there is much uh, potential for e-commerce uh, to take off in uh, Southeast Asia, for example. And uh, China is certainly uh, very active in the e-commerce e uh, sector in Southeast Asia. Uh, Alibaba, for example, uh, has uh, bought over uh, the, uh, the largest uh, e-commerce uh, website company in Southeast Asia, Lazada. Uh, it, it is now a sort of a part of uh, Alibaba, uh, which is a major stakeholder. Uh, and also, uh, China is very much into cashless payment systems in, uh, in Southeast Asia. For example, Bangkok, uh, Thailand is using the Chinese uh, cashless payment system. Uh, Alipay, Tencent Pay is becoming uh, sort of uh, popular in uh, Southeast Asia. At the same time, uh, China is also going into uh, 5G uh, AI systems in Southeast Asia. For example, in Malaysia, uh, the uh, transportation system, uh, the AI transport transportation system uh, that is used in uh, uh, Malaysia is actually uh, from Alibaba. And it is a similar system uh, to the one that you find in Hangzhou. Uh, so uh, in cashless payment system, AI systems, uh, and also e-commerce system, uh, China has been very active because it sees that this is the opportunity to lay the foundation in Southeast Asia so that future upgrades will be based on their standards instead of competing standards from other country. This is the same strategy that they are using for uh, the railway system. Once you lay down the gauge uh, for the railway, uh, it's very difficult to change the gauge width and the gauge system to another country. And so any upgrades uh, thereafter uh, will be uh, reliant uh, on the Chinese technology and Chinese standards. Same thing that they are doing for uh, ASEAN. And they know that uh, ASEAN uh, has, is, has aspirations to form a network of smart cities, especially the 26 most advanced first-tier uh, cities in uh, Southeast Asia, and so it also wants to move quickly into uh, the ASEAN network of uh, smart cities, which was pioneered uh, by uh, Singapore when it was the chair of uh, ASEAN. Yeah, so uh, talking about the ASEAN smart cities network, I think that's a very interesting one because you're also talking about how uh, China sees uh, ASEAN as a plus one and European and the US see uh, ASEAN also as a plus one. Um, how does that work uh, in terms of competition then uh, in these ASEAN countries? Because uh, if we look at Malaysia, for example, you see uh, some uh, cities uh, going into uh, uh, smart city uh, agreements with um, uh, European or American companies, uh, mostly American companies, and some of them going into um, uh, agreements with uh, with Chinese companies. So what what kind of dynamic do you see there? Because there obviously is some kind of competition going on? Uh, first of all, I think uh, for the West, uh, they have more choices. Uh, so uh, the plus one strategy for the West is not just targeted uh, at ASEAN. Uh, they can also go into uh, India, South Asia. So ASEAN is not the only choice uh, for the plus one strategy for Western companies. Indeed, uh, this is the same strategy that the Koreans uh, or the Japanese or even the Taiwanese have which, uh, you know, if you look at their go south or southbound policies, it targets mm -hmm. both India and ASEAN. Uh, but because of uh, difficulties in bilateral relations with uh, India, uh, China is perhaps more keen to focus uh, perhaps on uh, ASEAN and also on Central Asia uh, because of its uh, very good uh, relationship with uh, Russia at the moment. 
Central Asia presents another plus one strategy uh, for uh, China. Uh, bearing in mind that Central Asia is the traditional backyard uh, of uh, Russia. So uh, it, uh, it uh, cultivates uh, Russian support uh, for uh, you know, expansion or economic expansion or economic outreach into, uh, into uh, Central Asia. But back to uh, ASEAN, uh, if you look at ASEAN throughout history, uh, it has managed to uh, sort of, uh, uh, one could say, absorb or become an interlocutor uh, of uh, different great powers in the world. Uh, if you look at the very first uh, great empires uh, that started in Southeast Asia, it was by the Tamils uh, from Southern uh, India. And then uh, after the Tamil uh, empires uh, sort of declined, uh, Indonesia's Indic uh, empires uh, like, uh, you know, uh, Srivijaya and Majapahit started to emerge. Uh, these were Indic uh, empires. And then the Arab came, the Arab traders came, and uh, they converted larger sections of uh, Southeast Asia to uh, Islam, uh, Islamic religion. And then uh, for a short while, uh, the uh, Ming Dynasty China made seven voyages through Southeast Asia, and uh, some of them became vassal states of China. And then after that, you get the Europeans uh, coming from the Portuguese to the Dutch, and then uh, later on the British and the French, and then the Americans, and then the Japanese. So you can see that throughout, uh, you know, uh, history, Southeast Asia has been able to absorb uh, the influence of great empires and sort of, uh, you know, uh, take them in, but uh, at the same time, sort of intermediate them with uh, other influences. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what is happening at this moment. Uh, you have some countries in uh, Southeast Asia which are clear allies of the US, Thailand and the Philippines. You have uh, sort of... Uh, uh, countries in Southeast Asia that are traditional partners uh, of the West, uh, which are like uh, Singapore and Malaysia, but they are also uh, friends of, uh, of uh, China and trading partners of China. You have some countries that are uh, sort of gravitating towards China, becoming somewhat uh, semi-allies uh, of uh, China, like uh, Cambodia or Laos. And then you have other countries that are big enough with the heft to sort of balance uh, between uh, the great powers like Indonesia. So as a region, uh, because of this different affiliation, different friendships, different partnerships with different great powers, the region is able to absorb uh, the uh, incoming investments uh, coming from uh, different great powers from China, uh, you know, coming into uh, Southeast Asia with their AI and their e-commerce, uh, uh, you know, uh, deals, but also from the West. Now, one may ask, what is the difference between the Western approach and uh, uh, the Chinese approach? Uh, the Chinese approach tends to have a strong partnership or a strong roots with, uh, with the state. So many of the companies or some of the companies are state-owned enterprises. But when it comes to the West, especially uh, the Americans, uh, it's mainly private sector driven. So these two uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Industry 4.0, e-commerce uh, investments, they are coming in, but they are somewhat of a different nature. And it's a very interesting experiment to see whether a totally market-driven approach will uh, eventually dominate the region or will a state-backed uh, approach uh, dominate the region. Thank you. And this is one reason why I love having historians on the podcast as a committed historicist myself. You know, I rarely <laughs> yes. get to talk about uh, 
uh, past empires. Ming uh, voyages. <laughs> exactly, in the Ming voyages when we're talking about, but, but you're right. Um, and there's something really interesting there. What happens here very often when here in the West, and you were talking already about, you know, this Chinese strategy of laying down the rails, as it were, to, to create certain technological path dependencies, which ensure uh, greater market access for Chinese players in the future. And very often, when we, from the European perspective, look at China, our analyses are very Beijing-centric, right? This is what Beijing wants, and Beijing is going to steamroller over these countries in the region. And what we very often forget is that these countries are, you know, it's almost like they're real people. They have agency as well. And we very often forget that that these countries strategically interact uh, with Beijing too. So perhaps I think it would be fun to go into a couple of examples of projects like this that really illustrate the extent to which these countries have tried to make Chinese investments work within their own politics. Uh, could you give us a couple? In terms of uh, big projects, certainly uh, the biggest one is the uh, the railway system uh, that when completed will go from Beijing to Shanghai, Shanghai to uh, Guangzhou, to through Yunnan, through Yunnan and then uh, through Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia. Uh, and uh, this will be a sort of a pan uh, East Asian uh, railway, and that is the biggest one. Digital related projects would include the transportation system in uh, Malaysia uh, that's using the Alibaba uh, system that's similar to Hangzhou. Uh, cashless uh, payment systems in Thailand, uh, like uh, Alipay, Tencent Pay. In uh, Singapore, they have also implemented Alipay, uh, especially for uh, cab uh, drivers or, or, or cab uh, payments uh, when you are taking a cab in the city. Uh, and also uh, platforms, uh, for example, uh, like uh, 5G uh, technologies, uh, wireless mobile technologies, uh, all these are being uh, constructed uh, by China uh, in uh, the uh, uh, Southeast Asian region. Now, uh, some of these systems will complement uh, their physical systems. So uh, China, for example, is uh, building uh, the Southern Transport Corridor. Southern Transport Corridor is a logistical system which will branch off from uh, the overland system and it will go to a southern port uh, in China and from there ships will carry the goods down to Southeast Asia and vice versa. Now many of these ports that will be uh, interacting uh, in the Southern Transport Corridor will also install uh, some uh, form of uh, just-in-time logistical systems uh, that uh, China uses and so this will speed up uh, the uh, logistical uh, delivery. The whole point is to create a production network in which uh, you can have uh, different parts of uh, Southeast Asia that are uh, specialized in different products that will produce, that will be producing these products and eventually moving this kind of sub-components and parts to another location where they will be assembled uh, into uh, products that, that could be sold to China or sold from China to uh, Southeast Asia. So the logistical system uh, will quite likely uh, uh, use uh, the uh, Chinese, uh, uh, some of the uh, Chinese logical, logistical online system. Now at the same time in uh, Qingdao, uh, Chinese have uh, set up a demonstrative uh, zone where they have a port that is entirely run by AI. Uh, so there are, no, there are no humans in that port. Uh, the, uh, the trucks and uh, the cargo uh, ferrying uh, vehicles are autonomous vehicles and the cranes uh, that load and unload uh, from the ships are also operated uh, by machines. Now these ports can operate even in the dark 
and they can operate 24 hours and they have a power reserve that can operate uh, when there is a power uh, shortage or shutdown. And these are demonstrative ports, which I think might intrigue uh, some of the uh, Southeast Asian uh, countries uh, to look at as possible model for the future. But I have to stress uh, that this does not mean that there is no competition. Uh, the Indians, for example, also has a good uh, IT capabilities. Uh, the uh, Japanese uh, also have uh, some good uh, electronic uh, you know, and uh, online uh, capabilities. Uh, and also um, uh, there, there will be others uh, from the West uh, with, uh, with uh, the offer of technologies and funding uh, as a counterweight uh, to, uh, to the Chinese digital system. But in but this, in at this the moment, sense, yeah. yeah. But no, in this moment, sense, I think yeah. the online-offline uh, um, yeah. interaction is very important for China, right? Because, I mean, uh, if, if they're all also working on their southern yeah. corridor, to have that close linkage with all the offline uh, uh, transport uh, logistics, that's, that is crucial. I mean, a, a European country will be very difficult to compete with, uh, with that from uh, uh, with a with Chinese company that can also offer the, the physical uh, part of it. Absolutely, uh, because uh, they will be part of a, a package uh, mm -hmm. that will connect physical systems with the online system. And this goes for uh, the high-speed rail as well, right? When you have the high-speed rail, you need online digital system for signaling, for ticketing, uh, for monitoring uh, traffic flows, and all these uh, will certainly come as a part of the package uh, by uh, by China. So from the south. For now, we've been talking about from the Chinese perspective, but from the Southeast Asian perspective, you know, uh, for Southeast Asian countries, they are really waiting, right, uh, for details uh, from the West of their counter packages, right? So which uh, counter packages are we talking about? The G7 Build Back Better World, right? So Southeast Asia is looking out for what B3W can offer and they're waiting for details. Now, uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before that European Union has also announced its $340 billion package. And so uh, Southeast Asia is also very keen uh, to see what uh, can be offered uh, from there. And on top of uh, B3W and the EU package, you also have uh, the uh, Quad uh, uh, formed by the US, Australia, uh, uh, India and, uh, and uh, Japan. And uh, they're also waiting for details from the Quad. From the Quad, at least, we know that there is actually one uh, sort of a project that's coming up, which is uh, that the uh, Australian and the Japanese are funding uh, using American technologies to make uh, vaccines in India. And so that's one concrete uh, outcome of uh, the Quad offer. And uh, certainly Southeast Asia will be keen to dip into such uh, vaccines. Uh, to uh, you know mit mitigate the pandemic and also to look out for future opportunities uh, to work with the Quad uh, when it comes to uh, digital technologies. So from the Southeast Asian perspective, they are also looking actively out for alternative systems from B3W, uh, from uh, the US, from the Quad, and also from the EU announced uh, answer to the BRI. Can I just move to another aspect of uh, of this digital cooperation between China and ASEAN? Because uh, until now we've been talking about uh, mostly the, the the transport, the, the trade, the commerce, and I was I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about how China is working with ASEAN countries in terms of sort of 
the governance and the urban governance in in the smart cities programs uh, side. Is is do we see any? Is there is there any variation between ASEAN countries and how China is working uh, with these recipient countries on uh, urban governance, for example? I think in terms of uh, urban urban governance, uh, clearly uh, environmental issues. Uh, and uh, also sustainable uh, uh, cities, sustainable development goals, and also liv livable cities are top of the agenda, right? Uh, if you look at the uh, livable and uh, sustainable cities in Southeast Asia, I think there are at least three elements that's being stressed uh, by uh, stakeholders that, that are interested to uh, invest in Southeast Asia. The first element is how do you make cities more inclusive? So, for example, uh, how do you get cities to uh, be able to uh, uh, e be uh, be easy to navigate for everyone, including uh, people who are physically uh, challenged, uh, who uh, needs to get around with uh, additional uh, technologies, right? Uh, and this is something that's very much uh, of interest uh, for uh, ASEAN cities, and is also very much of interest for uh, smart cities uh, around the world. In fact, not only in China. Uh, but uh, Australia, Taiwan, Japan, they are also able to offer such uh, technologies. So uh, definitely one uh, place of concentration would be uh, inclusiveness. How can the uh, Chinese technologies uh, make uh, uh, ASEAN livable and sustainable cities more inclusive? The second one uh, is that there is a lot of uh, emphasis on traffic control. Uh, how do you reduce the carbon footprint? And how do you stop and regulate uh, traffic flows? Uh, that's very important. And in fact, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, system in place in Malaysia is kind of like a live laboratory demonstration showcase for uh, Chinese uh, technologies in that sense. Uh, but of course, uh, each ASEAN country has its own uh, in idiosyncratic uh, traffic uh, you know, challenges to resolve. And so, uh, you know, there needs to be time to wait for what the B3W or uh, the EU packages uh, can offer in terms of uh, technologies that can regulate uh, traffic flows and make uh, traffic much uh, much easier to control and reduce traffic jam. And the third area in which uh, I think a lot of uh, the ASEAN cities are interested to, uh, to develop uh, is actually uh, renewable energy. Uh, how do you, uh, you know, uh, switch off uh, applications when they are not in use? How do you uh, direct uh, solar power, wind powers, hydropower uh, to an optimal uh, sort of uh, a combination uh, that can power cities uh, of, the, of the future, particularly for countries like Laos, uh, which has an ambition to be the battery of Southeast Asia. Laos is landlocked, so it's very vulnerable uh, and its trade can only take place through Thailand or China. And so if it can become a battery of Southeast Asia, it can make up for the, for the shortcomings uh, uh, in terms of being a landlocked country and export energy uh, to other parts of uh, the Mekong Delta region uh, and, uh, and use its uh, abundance uh, kind of uh, wind power and uh, uh, hydro, uh, uh, not hydropower, but wind power and solar power uh, for this uh, purpose. And you need uh, uh, smart city technologies in order to divert uh, these kinds of energies efficiently because the biggest problem with uh, solar power is that uh, solar power loses a lot of uh, energy and electricity when it's transmitted over uh, over long distance uh, via uh, the lines 
And so you need a very efficient uh, kind of a smart city grid in order to uh, you know allocate uh, the energy uh, uh, efficiently and optimally to uh, different sectors. That's really and that's really interesting. And you know you're you're talking a lot about economic uh, rationales, which I think are very important. However, the questions I very often get uh, here in the West are political in nature. So here is China trying to export its regime type, or here is China trying to use debt to create dependencies in these countries in order to then take over infrastructure and to take over their domestic politics. And I guess there's two questions stemming from that. One, is that something that you've seen in your own research? And two, particularly in view of the fact that uh, we've seen Belt and Road investments drop precipitously over the last uh, year and a half or so, to what extent have we seen in Beijing that there has been a learning process ongoing with regard to these investments? What works? What doesn't work? Uh, what are the major lessons that Beijing has drawn from its experiences so far? The, the learning process has been very, very valuable for uh, Beijing. Uh, its uh, BRI project's uh, record is mixed. Uh, for example, uh, let's talk about Myanmar and Malaysia. Uh, whenever there was a regime change in Myanmar or Malaysia, uh, the orientation of its uh, projects uh, needed uh, evolution as well. So uh, when uh, the uh, Myanmar was under the military uh, sort of uh, junta's uh, role, uh, China had a very uh, special access uh, to the country. And therefore, uh, it was able to uh, put in a lot of large uh, projects like hydroelectric dams and also uh, uh, petroleum pipelines. But when there was a period of uh, democratization for about 10 years, uh, when uh, uh, Ms. Aung San Suu Kyi was released, uh, it then needed to work with another government uh, that uh, places a lot of premium on environmental uh, factors and local community uh, uh, access to, uh, to economic development. But then, as you know, this year in February, uh, another uh, coup has taken place. It has swung back to the military uh, it is widely expected that the military, uh, which has traditional friendships with uh, Russia and China, would probably uh, swerve more to uh, the uh, these two uh, uh, regional powers uh, uh, henceforth. Uh, in, the, in the case of Malaysia, same thing. Regime change, uh, need for uh, evolution uh, to uh, sort of uh, ride along with uh, the uh, political flavor uh, and atmosphere in that country. Uh, so, for example, uh, during the uh, Najib uh, administration, there was a lot of port uh, projects. And then uh, later on, when uh, Dr. Mahathir came into power, uh, Dr. Mahathir first uh, tried to uh, re-establish uh, some, some kind of uh, a hedging uh, by uh, tapping into his uh, traditional friendship uh, with the West and with Japan. And then after uh, Dr. Mahathir was removed from power, uh, he, uh, China was able to access uh, Malaysia much more with uh, Muidin. And it appears that UMNO is making a comeback. So China has learned a lot from such experiences. And three possible visible uh, sort of uh, uh, outcomes of learning experience can be seen. Number one, uh, the uh, realization of the importance uh, of uh, localization. And so uh, for the Thai project, for example, uh, they got all the engineers and technical experts to learn Thai language and culture and gave them uh, special lessons uh, before embarking uh, on the uh, Thai railway project. Uh, that's one learning process and one uh, sort of uh, uh, sort of takeaway uh, that they have from the previous experience. 
another kind of a uh, learning process uh, that uh, uh, China has uh, has done is uh, in uh, you can see in uh, uh, Kazakhstan uh, where they rotate the leader of the project between a Chinese uh, leader, a Chinese supervisor, and a, 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 a local uh, supervisor, so that both sides uh, have enough uh, sort of uh, a space uh, to uh, direct and run the project uh, in a rotational basis. And the third takeaway that they have from uh, the um, the experience that they had is that you need to cultivate all uh, power elites in the country, not just work with the government, but reach out to the opposition parties, reach out to the celebrities, reach out to uh, the uh, rebels, reach out to all parties that can possibly be an influence in any regime changes in the future. And these are three takeaways that we can see that uh, they have uh, learned from, you know, five to uh, seven years of experience in uh, working on the BRI. Let's see how that works and if that works out. <laughs> um, I also wanted to go back to uh, Roger's earlier question about uh, what some of the European and US analysts uh, have said about uh, China exporting a regime or more political motivations for uh, working on these uh, smart cities. Uh, I just wanted to uh, go back to that question and, and ask what do you see from your research? Uh, is this something that you can uh, that that you have identified as well, or is this a bit of a myth? The thing that has made uh, ASEAN to be such a sort of optimal aggregator of uh, interests of different powers in the region is the very fact that its member states have very different political system, and so you get the ASEAN Five. The ASEAN Five traditionally are veering more towards parliamentary democracies. That are more that resembles the West uh, much more because they were former colonies uh, of the West, and then you have uh, the uh, sixth member, which is Brunei, and that is a constitutional. Um, uh, sorry, that's a kingdom, right? A sultanate, and then comes uh, the last four members, CLMV countries that were uh, former socialist countries. So, in terms of governance uh, model, uh, the uh, first six ASEAN countries probably. Uh, we'll uh, look at the, the West and its governance model uh, much more traditionally than other models. But the last four uh, ASEAN uh, countries, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar and Vietnam, they all have semblance with the Chinese uh, uh, sort of authoritarian model. And out of the four, uh, Vietnam and Laos have a very similar one party dominant, uh, one party system. And so uh, I think uh, the uh, the governance model of China with regards to uh, functions like uh, surveillance, monitoring, uh, digital tracking, uh, and uh, also uh, sort of uh, digital, the use of digital technologies uh, to, uh, to maintain order and stability is probably uh, much more useful for the last four to reference, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, and Vietnam. Do you already uh, see cooperation? Uh, oh yes, field. definitely. In uh, Cambodia and Laos, uh, you know, you you would probably see much more exchanges, especially uh, Cambodia, because uh, China and Cambodia are very much intensely interlocked uh, in the military sphere right now. Uh, mm -hmm. You can see that even at the height of uh, the pandemic last year, uh, China and uh, Cambodia launched the, a very big, large-scale military exercise 
known as Exercise Golden Dragon. So we are likely to see the intensification and deepening uh, of uh, uh, governance uh, exchanges, security exchanges, geopolitical exchanges between China and Cambodia. Uh, as for the other three, uh, they used to uh, be able to keep a distance uh, from China, especially Vietnam, because of uh, uh, you know overlapping uh, territorial uh, disputes. But since uh, the uh, coup happened uh, this year in February, we are quite likely to see uh, Myanmar, uh, you know, reorientering its uh, relationship uh, closer to Russia and China. And I think it might be possible that they will adopt more uh, governance uh, uh, features of, uh, uh, they will learn more about the features of governance models, uh, you know, a strategic, uh, you know, uh, uh, techniques and uh, geopolitical uh, strategies from uh, Chinese henceforth. Uh, so last four uh, ASEAN countries would probably where, you know, you'll see more uh, influence come in. I have one last uh, question in short to ask you before we uh, we wrap up. I mean, this is such a, a vast field. And as you say, there's so many differences between ASEAN countries and how ASEAN countries cooperate with China, with Japan, with India, with uh, with European countries. Um, we've there is so much to talk about here uh, and there is so much that is talked about in the media. I just wanted to ask you, can you maybe say if there is anything of all these things that we are not paying attention to and we should be, what are we missing here? What is, what is the question that we're not asking ourselves uh, and that we should? In short. Uh, my uh, question to you is from whose perspective? Uh, from your perspective. Okay, I think uh, there are three things that uh, we probably need to pay more attention to. Uh, the first is uh, pandemic uh, vaccine diplomacy. Uh, that we need to pay more attention to it, uh, especially delivering vaccine PPE and also preparing Southeast Asia for the post-pandemic uh, economic recovery. Uh, the second thing that we probably need to uh, look at is economic diplomacy. Uh, how uh, you know uh, other countries can uh, revive and strengthen uh, their economic diplomacy with uh, ASEAN and uh, not just uh, focus on geopolitical uh, issues. And finally, the third thing that we need to watch out for is technology. Uh, how is technology going to change uh, the way uh, countries govern themselves? And what is the ASEAN values uh, of individual countries when it comes to surveillance systems and also uh, things like uh, rights, uh, individual rights, uh, etc. So these are probably three things that we would uh, need to watch out for because they can determine uh, the shape of a Southeast Asian region and perhaps even part of the East Asian region. Thank you very much, Taiwei. That was uh, wonderful. And I'm sure we could continue to talk for much, much longer, but we're running out of time. Uh, yes. So we're have to call it, going to call it a day here. But what I'm taking okay. away from your last comment as well is, you know, take these countries seriously, because yes. what's what's happening there, they, they have agency. Uh, yes. And also, if what you're already saying, they may well be looking towards China as an example, particularly at development levels. And I think that's that's a really important one. But thank you so much. Uh, that was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure on my part too. Thank you for listening to the China Smart State podcast. Feel free to subscribe and please leave a rating on wherever you've downloaded it from. We'll be back next month with a new episode.